my voice. So I think it'll just hold about where it is. So you just need to make a switch in your brain somehow. And so you can track and not be distracted. If you're going to make a switch, go ahead and just go ahead and choose somebody you really like to listen to on the radio or something and just get their voice in your head. And that's what you'll hear. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 1 is where we are this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You know how it is every year we, we survive the summer and we're so glad when fall gets here and it's refreshing, uh, temperatures start to change, but our minds definitely start uh, thinking about Christmas, it's coming, and as Christmas Day gets closer, everything sort of picks up steam, you know, decorations going to come out at some point, the tree is put up, gift buying begins somewhere along the way. Eventually, there are likely some special get-togethers of friends or maybe family members come to visit. Perhaps uh, we go somewhere else to visit them. Uh, As a church, we have our annual Christmas Praise concert. And by the way, this year's concert was our best ever. So wonderful. It's all wonderful, really. And then it's done. I mean, think about it. Yesterday was Christmas. Today is not. It's over. At some point, the decorations start coming down. We have an expression to capture the idea of getting past something like that. We say it's, it's in our rearview mirror. That means something's behind us. We're, we're moving on. So we can say this about Christmas 2021. It is now officially in our rearview mirror But that's only things related to the trappings of Christmas. The substance is not in the past because the substance is Christ. And Christ is our focus every day of the year. So though Christmas officially may be in our rearview mirrors, we are going to keep looking at Christ together this morning. And of all the passages of Scripture, I could choose for that, none thrills my heart more than this one, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the unknown human author of Hebrews wrote this epistle to present a particular theme, and that is the supremacy of Christ over all things. Now, keep in mind that the original readers of this book were Jewish Christians, Jews who had come to profess Christ, at least profess him, who lived in Rome, but who were under a lot of pressure to renounce their faith, to defect, as it were, and many of them to, some of them to return to Judaism. The biggest pressure to defect was the knowledge that following Christ would come at a high cost. They would be excluded from Jewish society as they had known it. But even more than that, there was potential of persecution, even violent persecution. History does tell us it came. So this pressure caused some, not all, but caused some to reconsider their decision to follow Christ and to reconsider even the narrow view of truth that true believers hold. 
Therefore, the epistle to the Hebrews was written with that in mind, to encourage believers to persevere in their faith, to press on to full maturity. And as well, the book confronts those who were considering defecting. The book confronts them with the reality that if that's what happened, they were never saved to begin with. And as stated, the author's approach was to point out the supremacy of Christ over everything. The supremacy of Christ over everything to which the readers uh, might be tempted to turn. If you study the book of Hebrews, you find the superiority of Christ in this way. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses and, and the prophets and the Jews held Moses in high esteem. He's superior to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. He's superior to all the sacrifices, the blood sacrifices under the old covenant. He's superior to what the tabernacle and the temple represented. And of course, he's superior to any false teaching from the world. We can say it this way. The readers needed to hold fast to Christ. In fact, the author sums that up later on in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Here's what he says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. So keep all of that in mind as we look at our passage this morning, and I'll read it for us, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. And by the way, the pronoun his is not actually in the text. It it means just son. He has spoken to us in someone of the quality of sonship, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he had inherited a more excellent name than they. So in these first few verses this morning, we're going to find some reasons, two of them, two reasons for being always in awe of Jesus, and thus, you could say, reasons to hold fast to him. And as you'll see, these reasons relate to the revelation of truth from God. Here's reason number one. He is the final source of revelation. He is the final source of revelation. Go back to verse one. Our author begins by mentioning the temporary revelation that was found under the old covenant, what we know as the new, te- the old testament. <clears throat> verse one: God, after He spoke long ago, stop there. Let's take a step back and look at that little statement. This is the most vital, bottom line truth that everyone needs to know, all people, that God spoke. Let's think about the age we live in. We live in a relativistic age. In fact, some surveys conclude that as many as 70% of Americans insist that there are no absolutes when it comes to matters of truth and morality, which is really interesting. They insist. 
that there are no absolutes. These are the ones who label anything that claims to be truth, and you'll read this at times, anyone who claims to be truth, they, they just label those claims mere construct of thought, constructs. And they say that knowledge and belief are in flux, changing, and are uncertain. We're told that we can't know anything about anything for sure, especially when it comes to the knowledge of God. Again, those who insist that there are no absolutes don't seem to realize that they hold that view as if it is an absolute truth. Well, when there is a loss of truth, there's something that goes with that, a loss of hope, especially when we're referring to the truth about God. Now, granted, God is beyond the realm of our normal senses. We can't discover truth about God on our own. If we're to know anything about God, if we're to know his answers to things, if we're to know his will, his plan, his salvation, then he must speak to us. And the good news is that he has. Verse 1, God spoke. We can know him. Because of that, there's ultimate hope for us as individuals. That's why there's nothing more important than this, nothing more essential than what Hebrews says here, that God spoke. And God has done that in Scripture. We're familiar with these verses, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. More literally, it's expired by God, breathed out by Him. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 is even a more poignant statement for us this morning. 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That is what we refer to the the doctrine of the Bible's inspiration. All the books of of the Bible, the individual books of the Bible, are not just the inspired thoughts of people. Instead, Scripture is God's Word from His own eternal mind given through the Spirit's work in the lives of those human servants that He chose. Now that has some important implications for us. Here's one. Because God spoke, Scripture carries then divine authority. That is a bottom line issue in everyone's life, their source of authority. And for many today, as it's always been true in history, authority for many is just their reasoning ability, what they can work out on their own and understand. For others, it's whatever public opinion is saying. It could be their experience, that's their authority, or something about science. As a result, they set aside the Bible's teachings if the Bible's teachings collide with current cultural standards and views. Fact does not change that God demands that we humbly come to Scripture, embrace it, and obey His Word as our final authority. There's another implication. Since God wrote it, the Bible is enduringly relevant. Relevant. God Himself does not change. That's true because of His nature. By His very nature, by definition of being God, He cannot change. We find that in Malachi 3, verse 6. God said this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, his word doesn't change. 
And that's said in Scripture. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, yes, some things in the Bible, if you understand them in their context, they're intended only for the original recipients. Somebody was told to leave where they are and to go over there. That was for that person to obey. Some things in Scripture we say are descriptive and not prescriptive. But the teaching given all through the Bible on the essentials, the essentials like God's character, what sin is, the essentials about human nature, God's moral standards, the good news of salvation, all these truths that represent the core teaching of Scripture, they abide forever for the simple reason that God himself abides forever. Now back to verse 1 of Hebrews. It provides some more detail about the means God used when he spoke to us to give us what we know as the Old Testament. Verse 1, he spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. With those terms many, we would automatically think that maybe the main point here is, is the Scripture's variety. The Old Testament is diverse in its form and content. And that is true. And yet, all the way through it, God was speaking. I mean, zoom out. The Bible consists of 66 books written over at least 1,300 years, 40 different authors, I think it is, and yet it's one book, one unified message. There's a great quote by James Boyce in the bulletin about that. But here in verse 1, although all that's true, in verse 1, the point is not so much about the variety of the form and content in the Old Testament. Instead, it's making a point that it is incomplete. It is fragmentary. It is gradual in its character. Many doctrines we find there are progressively revealed, and therefore, you definitely walk away from the Old Testament with a sense of expectation. The Old Testament expectantly long for fulfillment, long for an answer, And that answer is Jesus Christ, which is what verse 2 goes on to confirm. Verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in son, someone of the quality of sonship. The verb there is very important, the tense of the verb. Authors under the Spirit's influence could choose more than one tense. This is in a tense that means it is final. It's a tense that emphasizes completeness. He has spoken. So in contrast to the Old Testament revelation, God's revelation that continued in Christ as the final revelation and the books of the New Testament that flesh out who Jesus is and what he did and what he expects of his people, all of it then represents God's final word. He has spoken. God does not speak anymore. That's the point even of calling this era that we live in the last days. It's a phrase that, that means that this age that we're in, it's the age when, when God's revelation was made complete. I like the way John Calvin puts it. In Christ, we have the last closing word. Now, that puts Jesus in a different category from all the prophets that preceded him. Martin Luther put it this way, it is not a prophet speaking to us, but the Lord of the prophets. It's not a servant, but a son. Not an angel, but God. 
take the original readers, because of this, there was therefore no reason, no excuse for any of those original readers then to abandon Christ and revert back to Judaism. And likewise today, there is no reason to be enamored with the shallow, ever-changing opinions and philosophies of the world. Jesus, he is the final source of revelation. Well, with that point about finality made, we come to the second reason for holding fast to Christ. Number two, he is the supreme source of revelation, not just the final one, but the supreme source of revelation. So what we come to in verses two and three are some evidences of that supremacy. So let's look at them. There are seven of them. Here's number one. We'll call it his delegated authority, his delegated authority, verse 2, whom he appointed heir of all things. The whom there refers to Jesus, the Son, and he is God the Father. God the Father appointed the Son heir of all things. Now, before we talk about being the heir, let's just remember something. Scripture teaches uh, when it comes to ownership that God owns everything. You find that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 26. It's actually a a statement from the Old Testament. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, it says, For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. However, our verse in Hebrews says that the Son is the heir of all that God possesses. Everything in the created universe. Everything in the world to come. All thrones, all dominions, all principalities and powers, everything visible, everything invisible, everything is Christ's by the right of inheritance. But notice how it's worded. It doesn't just say the Son is the heir, though he is. It says the Son has been appointed the heir. It's this idea of being delegated the heir, and this term, appointed, implies authority. So to be appointed heir means not that you just have been given everything, but you have authority over everything. And that is exactly why Jesus said this in what we call the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 18. He told his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. That's what our verse in Hebrews is saying. Moreover, this appointment to an inheritance was not just something temporary. There again, the tenses of the verbs are so important in Scripture. The verb appointed is in a tense that means something that's timeless. The Son will always have the supreme place of authority over all things. So there's one evidence of his supremacy. Here's another one, second one. His creative power. His creative power, verse 2 says, through whom... Also, he, God, made the world. So that preposition through means that Jesus was involved in the creation of everything that exists. We saw that in the Gospel of John, right? John chapter 1, verse 3. It says very clearly there, all things came into being through him, Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1, verse 16, Paul writes, by him, Christ, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. But we need to understand the meaning of the term world in this verse. It is not the expected term in Greek. It is not the term cosmos. 
That is the usual term for the physical universe, the physical world. There is another term, we would translate world still, but instead of cosmos, it's the term ionos, A-I-O-N-A-S, ionos. That literally means ages. Now we do find ionos and cosmos sometimes used as synonyms, but ionos is picked by authors to intentionally capture something far more comprehensive than just the physical universe. Through Jesus, the physical universe was created. I mean, that's true. The cosmos, all the mountains, all the rivers, all the golf courses, the seas, the heavens, the stars, physical world. But here, Ionos. Now we see included in his creative power the creation of all the periods of time in history. All the periods of time, the epics of time on the timeline of human history. Including everything that's happened in those periods of time. All that's become manifested in those periods of time on the timeline. Space and matter and time and energy. Everything formed through Jesus. And this is astounding. That through Christ, God created all the epics of time on the timeline, all the eras of human history. And that even includes how one generation advances to the next. Christ is over all that. It's around Jesus that time even runs its course. It includes every event in a nation's history, like ours or any other nation that has come and gone off the face of the earth. That's all due to Christ's creative power. It includes every event in one owns one's own personal history, your own epic on the timeline. Christ is in control of that by his creative power. Daniel 2, verse 2, verse 21. I love this verse, Daniel 2, 21. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He goes on to say, he removes kings and establishes kings. God does that through Christ. Of all the different nations that have existed, even the different cultures that are still here, but some cultures have come and gone, here's what Acts 17, verse 26 says, that God has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God's determined all that through Christ. So let's just take those first two evidences, his delegated authority and his creative power. Let's think about this. The heir is also the creator. The creator inherits everything he made, and he has authority over all of it. Here's the third. The writer must have thought that those two are kind of shallow, so he wants to go deep now. No, they're all deep. Number three, his inherent glory. His inherent glory, verse three. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of of his glory. That word radiance or brightness can be used uh, of brightness that shines um, from without. In other words, it's more the idea of reflection, like the moon reflects the light of the sun. It has no light of its own. <clears throat> but this term could also be used of something innate, something within, the radiating brightness from within, like the sun. And so that's what the writer means here. Jesus manifests the eternal glory that's innately his. As one of the persons of the Godhead, he radiates the same glory that is God's glory. 
And glory here doesn't just mean uh, some sort of ethereal brightness about God. It's a way to refer to his reputation, his majesty, his beauty. In other words, all of his attributes. Glory is the manifestation of divine attributes. So the point here is that Jesus, the Son, perfectly reveals God in all his attributes, God in all of his glory. John 1, verse 14, and the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. In Christ, you have the ideal, perfect revelation of God. Well, if that's true, then why doesn't the world see that? Well, because of what 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says. Satan is involved in the delusion. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Spiritually blind. That is why John chapter 3 is so important. The new birth. That is why the Holy Spirit must supernaturally remove the blindness so that someone can see and embrace the truth. If they don't see and embrace the truth, it's because the Holy Spirit has not removed the blindness. They've been blinded by the God of this world. That third evidence flows right into the fourth one. Number four, his divine nature. So here's what we've seen so far, his delegated authority, his creative power, his inherent glory, and now his divine nature. I'm not going to review them every single time. It's going to sound like the 12 days of Christmas or something if I keep doing that. Number four, his divine nature. Verse three goes on, the exact representation of his nature. This is is actually a different statement than number three. Exact representation or express image or exact imprint is an interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word character. You spell it like our word character, but in the middle where we have a C, there's a K here, character. It's not even the same term found in Colossians 1 verse 15 where it says Christ is the image of the invisible God. That's the term icon. It's a good term. It's an important statement there in Colossians 1.15. That's not this word here, character. Our term in Hebrews, character, is found only here in the entire New Testament. And it refers to the mark that's made by an engraving instrument, the engraving that you can see then, the mark that's been made. In their world, the Greco-Roman world, the likeness of the image would be placed upon the coin so that when the coin was engraved, And you looked at it, you could recognize then the emperor. That's what's being said here. Christ is that. But more specifically, an exact representation of his nature. This term nature was used originally of the foundation under a building. You build something, a house, another building. You're concerned about the foundation. That's this word nature actually. So what's being said here is Jesus is of the same foundation, the foundational essence as God. There is no difference that can be made between the nature of the Father and the nature of the Son. Therefore, Jesus radiates God's glory because he actually shares, possesses God's nature. 
He possesses the very substance of God. See, in Jesus, we see what God's real being really is. That's why Paul could write in Colossians 2 verse 9, in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So it's wrong to say that Jesus is just similar to God. No, he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. So much so that Christ says in John 14 verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So those last two evidences, his inherent glory, his divine nature, you can say that separately and together they affirm the deity of Christ. Number five, his sovereign control. Verse three says that this one, the Son, upholds all things. I love that word upholds. It has the sense of sustaining something, even carrying it along, but inherent in the word is carrying something along to its destined end. It's carrying it along toward a goal that's been determined. You know what that tells us? All this about Christ, but particularly this one, this indicates that things do not happen in our universe totally by accident. Christ is the divine arranger. He orders things. He guide things, guides things along. He sustains things. He directs things. Christ is literally at the very center of the continuing stability of the universe. Again, Paul writes a lot about this in Colossians 1 and Colossians 2. Colossians 1.17 says, In him all things hold together. Here's how one writer put it. A man named Alcune Listen to this carefully. The substances of things were produced from nothing. God created them. And the things that have been made are sustained so that they don't return to nothing. You remove Christ's sovereign control, and that would mean the cessation of everything. Christ carries it along to the destined purpose for which everything was created. I take great comfort in verses like Daniel 4, verse 35. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. That's God. Isaiah 46, verse 10. My counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And that's all being done through Christ. It is Jesus who guarantees that the purpose will be reached One more thing about that, notice how Jesus accomplishes all that sustaining, all that carrying things alone, along, look at verse 3, he does it by the word of his power. That's an amazing statement. The word, the term word here just means a command. He commands it and it's done. I mean, that's how the world was created anyway, Psalm 33 verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth. So he created everything that way by his word, and he sustains everything the same way, by the command of the word of his power. This is a very significant statement about Christ's sovereign control of everything, everything. Even everything in the physical universe, there are all these physical laws in operation. Christ created all those laws that hold everything together in arrangement. And Christ is the one, by the word of his power, that sustains it all. 
He exercises, Christ does, complete sovereignty over the universe, sustaining it to its destined end. And just so you'll know, the verb here is present tense. It means a continuous work of the Son. Christ created time and space and the universe, and he's continually sustaining it by the word of his power. Number six, another evidence of the supremacy of Christ here is the supreme revelation. Number six, his redemptive sacrifice. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a favorite piece of clothing that got stained and ruined. I think of ink stains. I've had more than one of those through the years, especially in my nerdy years when I put my pens in my pocket here all the time. I've had pharmacy jackets, white pharmacy smocks as a pharmacist, get a big ink stain. I've had other things stained. We understand how that works. It's bad. But there is a different kind of stain that is far worse than an ink stain. Far worse than a berry stain or a rust stain. It's a stain that actually condemns a person eternally to God's judgment. That deadly stain is the stain of sin that exists on our souls. And we are born with it. Stained. And we add to the stain by our own sinful choices. And the problem is there is no helpful hint that will help you deal with that one. There's no little trick No amount of human effort will ever remove the stain. Nothing can remove the stain except one thing. That's why the hymn writers have written about it. We sing hymns like this. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's stains and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That is exactly what the Bible teaches. The stain of sin can only be removed by Christ and the death that he died on the cross. Go back to verse 3. It says, when he had made purification of sins... That's the reason Jesus came. That's the reason for the incarnation. The Son of God came to earth to live a perfect life in obedience to the law of God and then to die on the cross. Why? To accomplish this, purification. That's where we get our English word catharsis is from this term. It refers to the removal of sin. Now, many times when we talk about the payment that Christ made on the cross and what he accomplished, we use the word atonement, and that's a good word. It's a word that means a payment has been made to pay the debt of our sin. But here, it's not that term. What the writer of Hebrews says here with the term purification goes further than that, further than paying for sin, further than saying our sin's been forgiven. Purification involves a cleansing the removal of the stain from our soul, the cleansing that allows someone to stand before God and be counted pure and clean. Jesus made this purification. Even the term made is important. It's in a tense that means it was accomplished by a single action in the past that's complete and nothing ever needs to be added to it. The work is done. The result 
will always continue. What Christ did on the cross was a once-for-all purification, one that was adequate, complete. What a miracle all of this is. I mean, let me just summarize all of this so far. God's Son, the one that's been appointed heir, and therefore who has authority over all things, the one who actually created all things, including all the ages of history, the one who is the manifestation of God's glory, the one who manifests God's glory because he actually shares the divine nature of God, the one who sovereignly controls all the universe, that one loved the world of lost sinners so much that he went to the cross to make purification of sins. The seventh and final evidence of the supremacy of Christ is this, number seven, his fulfilled mission. His fulfilled mission. It says verse three, that after he'd done that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We get the imagery of sitting. It's a posture that means rest. This is another way of saying and confirming that the saving work of Christ is done. That part of his work, done. And it is a contrast to what took place in the Old Testament. The Jewish original readers, they would have been thinking this, that in the Old Testament tabernacle in the temple where the priests served and performed the sacrifices, there were no chairs where they could sit. And the reason was their work was never completed. If you thumb ahead to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, you find a comment on that, Hebrews 10, 11. It says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But with Christ, it's different. He offered himself as the sacrifice, made purification, and he ascended to heaven. And it says he sat down. Don't misinterpret this. This is metaphorical. Doesn't mean he had a literal chair waiting on him there. The verb indicates that his mission had been fulfilled. The one relative to sin, dealing with the stain of sin, is fulfilled. No more sacrifice to be made. So sitting down, that's important. So is the expression at the right hand of majesty on high. That's significant. There again, it's it's metaphorical. It doesn't refer to a location. It's wrong to think that in heaven there must have been a right side of the stage and the left side, and so the chair was over on the right side at that right end of the table. No, there's no literal right hand of God. God does not have a physical body. Instead, it's a way of stating something, the place of honor, the place of authority in heaven. So he sat down, which meant his mission was completed. And he ascended to the place of honor, the place of authority in heaven. But there's still something not to misinterpret. It doesn't mean that he's inactive there, just standing, doing nothing. No, he's active. I mean, the purification mission, that was fulfilled. But the ongoing heavenly existence of the exalted Savior is one of ceaseless activity. So what's he doing? Well, he's actively doing one thing I've already mentioned, actively sustaining the universe by the word of his power. 
Plus, later on in Hebrews 4, we find something else he does. Continually, actively. Tells us in Hebrews 4, something he does on behalf of his people. He dispenses mercy and grace from the throne of grace in our times of need. Something else Hebrews 7 says. He lives to make intercession for us. You see, if we know Christ, there is not a need for our sins to be forgiven. The stain's been removed. But there is an ongoing need of his ministry on our behalf. Well, just think about all this. His delegated authority, his creative power, his inherent glory, his divine nature, his sovereign control, his redemptive sacrifice, his fulfilled mission. For all those reasons, we should see him not only as the final source of revelation, but the supreme source of revelation. And given all those evidences of his supremacy, the author adds in verse 4 just a summary commentary on how we should view him. This meant a lot to the original Jewish leaders, uh, readers. Having become, because of all that, much better than the angels. And he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Why did he mention the angels? Well, God utilized the angels in the days of the Old Testament, especially. And because of that, because God would utilize them to carry out his will, the Jews, some, were prone to exalting the angels. You know, still today, people are fascinated with angels. You want to write a bestseller book? Just write about your experience with one of them. There's even a new movie being advertised that's coming out, Highway to Heaven. It's actually just a remake, film remake of an old TV series years ago called Highway to Heaven. In this movie that's coming out, <clears throat> kind of read the little byline about it, an angel returns to earth under the guise of a school counselor. None of my school counselors were angels, okay, back when I was in junior high and high school. They come to the angel, angel comes to earth under the guise of a school counselor to help troubled students and families in that school. We love that kind of stuff. Why do you think people love that? I think it's a representation of that innate sort of understanding that we want to know God, we want to have a relationship with Him, and we need some sort of mediator between us and that God. But Christ is that mediator. And God does use angels, but we're not to be fascinated with the angels, certainly not to the point of exalting them or basing even what we believe on some experience with one. Paul had to deal with that in Colossians 2. He says, verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, tricking you, deluding you by delighting in self-abasement. That's asceticism. God's not impressed with that. Or the worship of angels. Or the taking your stand on visions that you've seen. He says, you're inflated without cause by your fleshly mind. You see, the angels, like the prophets, were just servants. But Jesus is the son who fulfills everything about that old covenant. He's the answer, and that makes him superior. Here's the bottom line of all this today. To reject Jesus the way the Scripture pictures him, as the Bible reveals him, is to reject the one true God. Sadly, people are not born with a default setting to recognize that truth about Jesus. It is something we can only do by faith. It's only possible by faith. 
It's by faith that we believe what Scripture says about him. It's by faith that we obey him. It's by faith that we trust what's in his word. It's by faith that we believe that he is sovereign over all our times of blessing. He's sovereign over all of our times of trial. It is by faith that we believe that he's coming again in power and glory. It's by faith that we believe that every eye is going to see him, according to Philippians 2. And though it will be too late for most, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that it's all true. You remember that scene after the resurrection? We'll come to it in John chapter 20. Jesus interacting with his disciples. Thomas has such trouble believing. You know, show me something. The, I need to see the scars. Jesus condescended to him. Thomas says, my Lord, my God. Remember what Christ says, this general statement? He says, that's great, <clears throat> to paraphrase says this in John 20, verse 29. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's us. That's who we are. It's by faith that we believe these things. God's opened our hearts to have faith. It's by faith that we persevere in all this. It's by faith that we hold fast to Jesus. Not just at Christmas, but at every moment of the year. Christ is everything. We don't have him, then we have nothing. Listen, in this world we live in, it can happen that to hold fast to Jesus and our testimony of belief in him and his word, you can lose your job. So let me just say, if you lose your job, if you lose your friends, you lose your family, you lose your possessions, even if you lose your life, to be true to Christ and hold fast to him, it is worth it. And so be it. Here's what Christ said in Luke 9, verse 24 and 25. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, meaning his soul? Again, to have a right view means everything. And to be wrong means eternal judgment. Perhaps for you today, this is an invitation to come to Christ for that cleansing, the stain on your soul. To come to Christ so you can have this full and, and loving reconciliation with God as your heavenly Father. That requires forsaking all merit, supposed merit that you think you have on your own. To come to Christ means you come by faith and you bow before him in your heart as the Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glimpse this gaze at Jesus, this glimpse of the sun this morning. We thank you for the gift of faith that allows us to see what is true and what is not. So, Father, I pray that as we look toward a new year, that this would be our driving passion every day. We look at Christmas as a holiday in the rearview mirror, but we look daily, present tense, at Christ the one who sustains us, the one that we exalt, the one that we worship. 
Father, I pray for anyone here who needs to have their hearts opened. Give them the faith to believe. In our Savior's name, amen.